Today's passage is from Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. The parable of the persistent widow. And he, referring to Jesus, told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, Though I, I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Before we jump into this week's sermon, take a minute on each of the following three questions. You'll probably want to hit pause in between so you have enough time. In light of this parable, number one, who is God and how do I relate to him? Two, in light of this parable, who am I and how does God relate to me? Three, in light of this parable, how is God calling me to love him, his church, and my neighbor more? After listening to this week's sermon, go back and spend a few minutes reflecting on how your answers may have changed or not. You may be surprised by the difference that Jesus makes. One of the most comforting aspects of reading the Psalms is their timeless honesty. Who of us has not echoed the opening line of Psalm 13? How long, O Lord? Longing to live in a world as it should be instead of the world as it is is an undeniably universal human experience spanning culture, geography, and history without exception. Intuitively, we understand that our hunger for a thing is evidence of the thing's existence, whether that thing is mercy, justice, or a, a mouthwatering cut of prime rib cooked medium rare because after all, we're not uncivilized. When we experience the disintegration and rupture caused by sin or the general disconnection and loneliness of living in a broken world, there is something in us that both insists that, quote, just this isn't the way it's supposed to be and appeals to what or who we believe can change it. Jesus lived in a culture radically different from our own, but one every bit as relatable in terms of both shared humanity and common experience. There was something about his presence and teaching that struck a nerve and resonated with thousands of people who had been asking, how long, O Lord, on a daily basis for generations. It had been 500 years since God had sent Malachi, the last prophet of the Old Testament, to God's people, and his message was equal parts disturbing and comforting. In essence, God said, as a people, you have squandered my blessing, spit in the face of my love, unjustly oppressed one another, and otherwise failed to live as a redeemed people. That's the disturbing part. But the day is coming when I will set the captives free, heal the brokenhearted, and otherwise redeem all you who failed to live up to that redemption. In other words, hang on, I'm coming. The persistent widow in this parable represents Israel in every way, and especially the, the poor, needy, and oppressed. As a widow in that time and place, she lacked the wholeness of having a husband, the security of being married, and the power as a woman to do much on her own behalf. This parable doesn't say one way or another, but if she didn't have extended family to take her in, she would have been helpless in the face of injustice. 
and had little choice and even less hope but to nag the ever-loving pants off of a judge who would not have deemed a woman's testimony as legitimate evidence in court, never mind a widow's repetitive petition as worthy of answering. In other words, she had no power outside of sheer persistence. When Jesus describes this judge as one who didn't fear God, he's using language from Proverbs to say that he is an unwise fool because as Proverbs says, fear of of God is the beginning of wisdom. When he says that he doesn't respect man, he's using language from the Psalms to say he is also wicked, which is also how the word for, uh, that we translate as unrighteous in verse six can be translated. In short, this judge is a corrupt, egocentric moron as interested in executing justice as he is inconveniencing himself, which is to say he's not. Jesus is not comparing this judge to God, but contrasting them. It's a specific approach to logic called uh, a fortiori, which makes a lesser to greater argument using a rhetorical question. So in other words, if, if this lesser, far lesser thing is true, how much more true is this exponentially greater thing? The disciples would have understood the judge to be a far better comparison to the Roman empire who much like a broken clock is right at least twice a day and can still get it right on occasion if you make justice quicker and easier than injustice. In fact, this weird backward Roman province uh, that was Israel at this time was as resistant and rebellious to the empire's usual strategy of assimilation, which is uh, they force everyone to worship the emperor as divine, that they just kind of gave up trying to enforce it. Israel then was the only conquered nation in the Roman empire to be allowed the freedom of worship. So like the widow, they had no power outside of sheer persistence. Now, at this point, we could do some pretty uh, decent application of all of this. It'd be along the lines of, you know, don't lose heart, just keep being persistent in prayer and you'll get the right and good thing that you long for. And while persistence is a good thing and that statement may in fact at least be partially true in practice, that's nowhere near the fullness of what Jesus is trying to impart with and through this parable. If you still have your Bible open, take a closer look at verses seven and eight. Last week, I harped relentlessly on the reality that there is nothing we can do to earn God's love. Jesus' description of God's people as elect hammers home that it isn't even our choosing God that saves us, but his choosing us. When Paul says that we are, quote, dead in our sin in Romans, he means that we are so spiritually poor, needy, oppressed, and powerless that we are unable to choose God unless he chooses us first. The widow's persistence then is not a faithfulness that she musters up from within herself, but is a function of God's faithfulness to work through those who Jesus describes elsewhere as, quote, the least of these. And especially in order to bring into the world the very rightness that we long and pray for and detect intuitively that is not part of our experience as it should be. In Isaiah 41 verses eight through 10, God says to his people and speaking through Isaiah, this is uh, God speaking the first person. He says, but you Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. 
Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. To be God's elect is not just a power greater than any other, and it is. (laughs) It also empowers both persistent prayer and patient perseverance anytime and every time it feels like God is delaying long over us. In fact, that phrase in the second half of verse seven is is really interesting. Your Bible likely translates it similarly as mine, which has Jesus asking the rhetorical question, will he, referring to God, delay long over them, over his elect? And the answer being, no, he won't, right? But this is one of the very rare places in the Bible where there is some controversy in how to translate it. And without getting into a level of ancient Greek grammatical nerdery that hurts my brain, it could arguably, arguably be translated instead as, although God might delay over them, over the elect. Here's why this is so important and helpful to know. Even if it doesn't fundamentally change the overall meaning of the parable, if we translate it like we read it initially, then it matches up with the very clear and straightforward beginning of verse eight saying, in essence, how could God delay in giving justice to his people? The answer is he won't. In fact, he will do so speedily. It's the opposite of delayed, it's speedy, right? This keeps the emphasis of the parable on persistence in prayer and, I want to affirm, is absolutely true. But if we translate it as, although God might delay long over them, it adds a subtle new dimension to this parable and has Jesus saying, in essence, I know it feels like God is long delaying the justice, the wholeness, the shalom, the flourishing and peace that you long for, and I get that. But, Your hope has never been in the timeliness of your deliverance or the intensity of earthly power, but in the sheer and unmitigated goodness and righteousness of a God who would elect an oppressed people who are enslaved under the world's most powerful empire, which is Egypt, a people without a place or home of any kind to be his chosen instruments of redemption in the world. From where God's sitting, he is bringing justice and speedily so. This way of reading it matches up with the latter half of verse eight, which actually has a definite article left out in most of your translations and has Jesus asking again, not rhetor- again rhetorically, nevertheless, when the son of man comes, will he find the faith or this faith on earth? In other words, it's not a generalized faith that goodness and righteousness will come to those who patiently persevere in prayer, but a faith that is rooted specifically in the goodness of God whether it feels like that goodness is coming quickly or slowly. Psalm 13, which is only six verses long, begins with the lament and petition I started with at the very beginning of how long, O Lord? But it ends with this same faith, the faith anchored in God's goodness. It says this, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me, i.e. through his saving, steadfast love. Regardless of which translation is more accurate, the two takeaways that, number one, God will not delay in delivering the elect, and two, God's goodness in choosing you fuels faith despite delay are both implications of this parable when we remember that this is, This is directed toward the disciples and and specifically in order to prepare them for Jesus' impending trial and crucifixion. 
like us, Jesus' disciples just didn't have an imagination big enough or expectations high enough that God's goodness might be so great that not only would he choose a comparatively needy, backwards, and powerless people as a treasured possession, he is so good that the speedy justice that Jesus, is, that Jesus promises was more than speedy. It was, it was imminent and far more potent than they could have possibly fathomed. Here's what I mean by that. God's steadfast commitment to his elect is an outflow of a goodness so great that he, i.e. Jesus, willingly exposes himself to the greatest injustice in human history, being falsely convicted and crucified by those whom you so dearly love and intend to rescue. And if entering into a broken world, he wasn't responsible for breaking wasn't enough, he co-ops the instrument of his crucifixion to redeem those who were responsible for the world's brokenness. In other words, we have a creator who made us in his image and we take that we, we so take that family resemblance for granted that we oppress one another and give our heavenly father the middle finger. And still he loves. Still he rescues. Still he compassionately enters into our broken world and submits himself to our jacked up distortions and expectations of who we think he is. Still he chooses to love us. Still, he chooses to love us. I love how Tim Keller articulates this in his book, The Reason for God. When he says that the cross doesn't answer the why of our suffering, but it does answer why not. We cannot look at the cross and think God is disinterested, uncaring, or unnecessarily slow in bringing about redemption. No, no God who loves his creation enough to put himself through that ordeal would delay without good reason, even if we can't see that reason. If we have a God big enough to do that, then we have a God big enough to have reasons that we're unable to see. Our longings will be fully met and our hunger ultimately sated one day until then, the goodness of God in Christ is more than sufficient to fuel our persistent prayer and patient perseverance. It also means that prayer is so much more than petition for those things in the here and now. It is also the vehicle for tasting and seeing that God's goodness will sustain us in the here and now. So whether you persistently struggle to pray at all or you just struggle to pray persistently, Step one is just to see and savor the goodness of a God who knows all your junk, your undeservedness, and your helplessness far better than you do and still sees you through the lens of 1 Peter 2.9, which says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. I know the last couple weeks I've been hammering pretty hard on, on humility and self-righteousness. And if you're feeling a little bit tired with that kind of layered on top of everything else, good. Because sometimes we need to come to the end of ourselves before we are able to fully see God in the way that he longs to show himself to us, which is that he is good and that he is sufficient and that you can rest in that.
Praise God and amen.